Thank you, Joanne. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, we are currently in a, a study, a series on the book of 1 Timothy, and we come tonight to uh, the beginning of chapter 2. Now, if you uh, looked at the sermon title, you'll notice it says the priority of prayer. Uh, many pastors, and that includes myself, hate coming up with sermon titles uh, because we're often on kind of a deadline to get the sermon title to the office manager in the bulletin, uh, to get it to uh, the video people so they can have it on DVD. And so I came up with this title, and, and the more you get into the passage, it's not just about prayer. And so many of us uh, pastors don't like sermon title making. Uh, I think it was maybe Highwell Jones who used to be a, a professor, I think it, he was a professor at Westminster, and I think this was true of Highwell Jones, that, that he so hated coming up with sermon titles, he refused to do it. And so when he preached through the book of Hebrews, it would be Hebrews sermon number five, Hebrews sermon number 31, and, and he just refused to do it. I think there's probably some wisdom in that. So all of that to say, if you think that this is only a sermon on prayer, it's, it's not. It's going to be about prayer, but it's not just about prayer. First Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 7. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth." Over the last, um, I think, probably 50 years or so, there has been a proliferation of, of books that are designed to talk about the church. Um, it, it seems like in the last half a century that there has been many, many of these books that have come out that are designed to, to help pastors and, and elders and uh, church members understand how the church should function. Many of these books are very, very good. Uh, for example, this morning, our adult Sunday school class started a new study on a book called Why We Love the Church, and it's a really, really good book that, that lays out the importance of the church and the importance of, of us being part of a local church. Unfortunately, though, many of these books are not very good. Uh, they're not scriptural. Uh, they're not sound doctrine. Uh, they take after the world of marketing really more than anything else. We have the best book that, that lays out what the church should be and do. It's the word of God. Human authors may err. Uh, human authors may give us wrong information or wrong direction. But the Bible never errs. The, the Bible never gives us misinformation. 
And I say this tonight because the book of First Timothy is, is all about God's blueprint for his church. It's all about what God desires to see in his church. And, and this is why this is such an important study for, for us, for any church, uh, that, that we would understand what God desires for Zion. And so as we look at this passage tonight, I, I want to draw out three things that Paul brings out here, three principles, uh, three principles that should characterize the, the life of this congregation. First of all, Paul tells us that we are to be a praying church. Secondly, he tells us that we are to be a loving church. And then third, he tells us that we are to be a Christ-centered church. A praying church, a loving church, and a Christ-centered church. Paul begins in verse 1, and he says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now again, this, this does apply to our own individual life as Christians. But, but more importantly, again, this is a book about the church. And, and so what Paul is saying is that the church of Jesus Christ should be a praying church. Not just a church that talks about prayer, not just a church that understands the importance of prayer, but a church that actually prays. You'll notice that Paul uses four words here that refer to prayer, and all four of these words are very helpful. First of all is the word supplications. This, this word refers to making specific requests for specific needs. In other words, when we pray, our prayers shouldn't just be these generic, general prayers. God, bless all the missionaries. God, bless your church. Our, our prayers should be specific prayers for specific needs. Secondly, the second word Paul uses is the word prayers. This, this word in the original language has a, a God word focus. It's a reminder to us that, that we're praying to God. We're not praying so that we would be heard by other people. We're not praying so that, that others would be impressed with us, with our flowery language or our great knowledge of theology. We're praying to God. We're not praying to each other. We're bringing our prayers to him. We're bringing our requests to him. And God is not impressed with our flowery language. God is not impressed with our theological acumen. We are to bring our request to him. Third word is the word intercessions. The, the idea is that we are interceding on behalf of other people. We are, we are taking people, as it were, before God's throne of grace. It makes me think of the, the man who was paralyzed and he had friends who we're going to do anything that they could do to get him to Jesus. And children, you remember what they did? They, they dug through a roof and lowered the guy down through a roof so that he could be before Jesus. It's kind of a picture of what we do in prayer, isn't it? We, we take our brothers and sisters and their needs and we, we bring them to God's throne of grace. That's what the word intercession refers to. And then fourth, thanksgivings. 
We'll look at this in a, in a bit more detail in a moment, but, but, but notice one group that Paul references here. He, he talks about praying for kings and, and all who are in authority over us. On the one hand, we, we are to be praying for the needs of those who rule over us, but on the other hand, Paul is reminding us that we are to, to pray for them with an attitude of thanksgiving. We are to pray for those in authority over us with an attitude of thanksgiving. I want you to think of the person that you think was the best president in your lifetime. You might say Ronald Reagan. You might say Donald Trump. You might say Joe. No, none of you would say that. But it's easy, isn't it, to pray for our leaders with thanksgiving when we think they're doing a good job. It's easy to be thankful for those that we agree with and that we think are governing in the right way. But, but when you think about the time in which Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who's the emperor? Nero. Children, Nero was a very, very bad man. He was a very wicked ruler. He persecuted Christians. He, he put Christians to death. In fact, listen to what John Calvin writes about the, the political leaders of the first century, the civil leaders of the first century. Calvin says they were all enemies of the gospel. They were all persecutors of poor Christians. They were all murderers and they were all wicked men. But in spite of that, again, that's the context that Paul's writing. In spite of that, God says, pray for them with thanksgiving. Surely, I think that was difficult for the Christians living in Ephesus to do. Imagine, imagine praying for people who wanted to kill you. Imagine praying for people with thanksgiving in your heart for people who had put your family or your friends to death. Imagine praying for wicked, tyrannical, cruel rulers who hate the church. And if we're honest, we will confess that that's very difficult for us to do today. It's very difficult. It's hard to pray for people who spit in the face of God's truth. It's hard to pray for people who, who legislate laws that are in direct violation of God's law. And, and yet, that's what the Bible commands us to do. And, and notice, it's not just civil leaders we are to pray for. At the end of verse 1, we are told to pray for all people. Now, children, did you know that there's almost 8 billion people living in this world right now? 8 billion, that's a lot of people. Does that mean that we have to pray for every one of those 8 billion people? Well, obviously we can't pray for each one of them individually, but, but I think the point that Paul is making is that our prayers are to take on a, a worldwide perspective. We don't just pray for the members of Zion. We don't just pray for the ministry of Zion. We, we don't just pray for, for churches in the Central Valley or churches in California. Our prayers should, should take on a larger scope than that. And, and that's why historically we have focused our congregational prayers on Sunday nights 
on, on the church universal and on our world. We pray for the persecuted church. We, we pray for missionaries throughout the world. And, and so that's what we're being reminded of here, to, to think globally when we pray. We, we don't do that here just because, well, that's what we've always done. We do that because that's a natural outworking of this passage. Now, why should we pray like this? Well, two reasons. First of all, we are to pray like this for our society. Notice the middle of verse 2. So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, we, we pray for our civil authorities, we, we pray for our president, we pray for our senators, we pray for our congressmen and women, we pray for our state and local officials so that there may be peace, so that there may be order in our society, so that we would be free to worship God like we are right now, so that we would be free to, to live out our faith, so that we would be free to proclaim the gospel without any hindrance. Now, you and I know that we can expect tribulation in this life. We, we can expect opposition from those who don't know God. We can expect that, that, that we will suffer in this life. This is not a prayer that, that we will never suffer. This isn't a prayer that we would have such wonderful civil leaders that we would all be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. This is a prayer that, that the church would be able to carry out its ministry without opposition and without intrusion. I think churches in, in places of great persecution understand that. We I think we're starting to understand it more. But how important it is that we pray that way. We pray for the good of our society. We pray for the good of the place in which we live so that the church would have free course to worship God, to evangelize the lost, to to preach the gospel. That the good of our culture will be for the good of our church. We, we read something similar in, in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. You might remember that during Jeremiah's time, God's people were living in captivity in Babylon. It was a very dark period for them. They were living in a pagan city. Listen to what God told his people in, in Jeremiah 29, verse 7. This is, this is their, to be their posture toward the place in which they're living. God says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Pray for and and seek the welfare of the city that you are living in. And so we should pray for our city. We should pray for Ripon. We should pray for Modesto and Manteca and Stockton and Farmington and Oakdale and Escalon and all these other cities and towns. We should pray for these places. We should pray for the Central Valley. We should pray for its welfare. Because in its welfare, we will find our welfare. That's what the Bible is telling us. And so we pray this way for the good of our society. But there's a second reason that we are to pray this way. There's a second reason that we are to be a praying church. And the reason is, it is for souls. Not just society. It is also for souls. We are to be a church that prays for conversions. Look at verse 4. Paul says there that God desires all people to be saved and to come 
to the knowledge of the truth. Our prayers are to be evangelistic. Our prayers are to be pleading with God to save those who don't know him. I would venture to guess that that most of us in this room know at least one person who does not know the Lord Jesus. It's a family member, it's a, it's a friend, it's a classmate, it's a coworker, it's a it's a neighbor, it's somebody you see at the grocery store or the bank all the time. We're called to pray for them. Paul even tells us, notice, that that this kind of praying, praying for our civil leaders, praying for for people's salvation, Paul even says something interesting in verse 3. He says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Christian, you want to please God, right? I think all of us would say that. It doesn't matter if we're we're children or middle-aged or older adults, it's our desire to please God. And one of the things that's pleasing to him is when his church is a praying church. And so we're called very clearly, very explicitly here to be a church that prays. Secondly, we are to be a loving church. Look again at verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, Let's be honest, as Reformed Christians, verse 4 makes us a little nervous. We read verse 4 and and we go, should we really be talking like this? Is it really okay to say that, that God desires all people to be saved? What do we do with this? Well, there are a couple of ways that, that we could take this statement. First of all, we could interpret it is telling us something about the heart of God for the whole human race. If you read your Bible, you you will notice that there are times when the Bible tells us that God has a, a general love or a general benevolence toward all mankind. Um, Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, your loving your enemies is emulating your heavenly Father. Jesus goes on in the next verse And he says, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And of course, we know John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God has a a general love for all people. Now, in addition to that, we, we also believe that God has a special love, a saving love toward the elect. The Bible is very clear that before the foundation of the world, God set his electing and saving love upon a certain number of people whom he determined he chose to save in Christ. But but brothers and sisters, we want to be very careful that we don't have this idea that God loves the elect and he hates everyone else. That's That's an extreme position that I do not believe is taught in Scripture. You might remember what God says in the book of Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel 33, verse 11. 
As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God has a general love for all people. He does not delight in judging the unrepentant. This is the revealed will of God. God's will is that all people would know him. And so that's one way to interpret verse 4. It's a legitimate way. Another way to interpret verse 4 is to see it as showing us the the broad character of God's kingdom. Uh, Think for a moment about the context in which Paul wrote this book. Um, in, In Paul's day, they were dealing with those who wanted to limit salvation to one elite group of people and and so for the Jews they thought if if Gentiles were to become Christians they had to become like Jews they had to follow the the Jewish laws and that's why Paul wrote the book of Galatians but for the Gentiles they thought that that all people had to have a special inside knowledge of God this is what we call Gnosticism It's an inside knowledge. That's what John was dealing with in the book of 1 John. It also comes up in the book of Colossians. And so there was this idea going on in the first century that that salvation was for one specific group, whether the Jews or the Gnostics. But scripture is clear, Old Testament and New Testament. The church is made up of people from all tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations. Salvation, Salvation is not the exclusive property of one specific ethnic group. And so it's possible that that's what Paul is getting at here in verse 4. God does not desire that his kingdom be made up only of Jewish people or only of English-speaking people or, or fill in the blank with whatever ethnic group you want. But whatever view you take of verse 4, the fact of the matter remains that, that Paul is making the point that God is a loving God, a merciful God, a gracious and, and forgiving and saving God. Think of all the grace you have been shown. Think of the Father's love for you. Think of the Savior's love for you. Think of the Holy Spirit's love for you. And since this is true of God, and since we are his children, it it should be our desire to to emulate him by showing love to whomever God sends our way. Zion should be a church that, that loves all people who walk through those doors. All people. Not just Reformed Christians, not just people who know the catechism, not just white people, not just people from Ripon, not just people we can relate to, not just people with the same likes and dislikes and consumer preferences. We are to love all people the Lord sends to our church. And, and when we live this way, we have to understand, Jesus tells us this, that this is a powerful witness to the world. We, we live in a world where people hate Spend, spend time, maybe you shouldn't, but if you spend time on social media and, and you spend time in some of these places where, where people show their absolute anger and hatred of other people, 
And, and Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you what? Constantly belittle other people? Constantly debate theology? Constantly tell people what they don't know? You all know the answer. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another. It's good for a church to examine itself, right? Are we a praying church? Are we a loving church? Number three, we are to be a Christ-centered church. Notice what Paul writes in verse five. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We are in a uh, presidential election year, aren't we? Yay. For the next um, several months, we are going to be bombarded with candidates telling us why we should vote for them. We're going to be bombarded with candidates telling us why they give this country the greatest hope. And, And by all means... We need to pray for and campaign for and and vote for the person we believe best exemplifies what the Word of God says about civil leaders. And it's not those who kill unborn babies. We know that much. But we also know something too. And we also know at the end of the day, whatever president we end up with, is just a human being. Whoever we end up with is not our great hope. Psalm 146, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. And so we we should, as a church, we should speak out against immorality in our culture. We should denounce abortion. We should denounce what has happened to marriage and gender and all this other stuff. We, we should denounce policies and laws that are contrary to God's moral law. But that's not our chief message. That's not our chief calling. That's not what we should be known for. What we are to be known for is the only message that will bring true and lasting hope. And that is that there is only one way to have true hope and true meaning. There's only one way to know the one true God. And and that is Jesus Christ. That's what we must proclaim chiefly the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, that's the only thing, the only message that brings true hope. You know, churches can do a lot of good things in their communities. Churches can be engaged in, in many worthwhile causes. We've been involved in things like that as a congregation, probably will again, and, and that's good. It's good for churches to be out in their community and showing kindness and love. It's it's good to minister to people who are in need. 
But a church that does not preach Christ is not a true church. Paul says in verse 7, that's what I was appointed to do. I was appointed to preach Christ. That's the calling of his church, Christ's church. That's what this church is called to do. Not, not just today, but two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now, twenty years from now. To herald the light of the gospel in a dark world. That's what this table reminds us tonight. My, my only hope is not myself. My only ultimate hope is, is not a better president or better civil leaders, as important as those offices are. My only hope and your only hope is the one who gave himself as a ransom for us. Gave himself to deliver us from our sin, to deliver us from the judgment that is to come. That's our only hope. We pray that God would give us the grace so that we would be a praying, loving, and Christ-centered church for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we thank you for the light it sheds for us and the instruction that you give us. Father, as we read these words tonight, we pray that you would give us your grace so that we would be a church that prays, so that we would be a church that loves, so that we would be a church that preaches Jesus. As we come to the table now, Lord, we again thank you for the the gift of your son and pray that we would seek to honor you in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name.